No, I just started getting my eye off the ball because I started like feeling the pressure. And by the way, it's just so weird too because it's like we had been so successful. It's like, why am I feeling this pressure? Like, this isn't my vibe. This isn't how we work. Can't we just run autonomously from everyone else? Because you're destroying us. You're just destroying us. Welcome back to Label, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter. Okay, so we have now completed the ride to the top of the mountain for the underground Christian punk and hardcore scene. Brandon, the label, and the artists had all continued to just grow and grow and succeed for more than a decade. So now, all we need to do is for everything to just stay as it is. Just stay like this forever. It sounds easy. Just don't change anything. But we're all well acquainted with how the world really works, and we know the bad news in life is that nothing stays the same. But maybe that's also good news. Of course, it's easier for everyone to get along when the pie's growing, but as we move into the final act of this series, Brandon and the label and the bands and the scene and all the middlemen that make their living off of the music will have to deal with how to divide and control a rapidly shrinking pie. So we're going to spend the whole time with Brandon today, and we're going to start with what we identify as the peak of the label, and then we're going to go from there. What is the peak of Tooth & Nail? When was it the largest that it was as an organization? Um, probably 2005. Mm -hmm. Describe it at its largest. Um, in 2005, I believe, we put out 59 albums, and some of those albums were like Jeremy Camp, Under Oath, Amber Lynn, May, Norma Jean, Hawk Nelson, Thousand Foot Crutch, um, all like in the same year. More than that, though. Mm -hmm. 59 different records. and 59 records, many of which sold six digits of sales. Yeah, many of which sold over 100,000 each or, you know, it was crazy. Like we had that hip-hop artist KJ52, and mm -hmm. he sold 120,000 CDs. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, you know, so it was kind of almost like anything we did on the Christian side or the general market side. It was like, oh, we got three, ba four bands on Warp Tour, you know, we, you know. We have, our, and even bands like As Cities Burn, you know, they would sell 30 or 1,000 or 40,000. Like, new bands are beloved. They're a little bit before that. But you know what I mean? Like, just even our smaller bands are pretty big. By the peak of Tooth & Nail, what would be seen as what the numbers are so big. I mean, the numbers are just so big if you went through them and started to try to even do mental math. There's gold records. Yeah, there's seven or eight gold albums. In which there. means 500,000. Yeah, which is um, both the Under Oath albums, Jeremy Camp, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, And so then you'd have bands like that would sell 100,000. Falling up, sold a hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, and that's those are those are huge records by any standard, especially by today. And at the time, they were huge, and you had fifty nine of those. But was they, what would well, fifty nine? I mean, some would be like a um, compilation for charity, right? Or one would be a greatest hits CD from a band from whenever. You know, I mean, it wasn't all new releases, but I will never forget that we put out fifty nine because I I was I remember telling Jim I never we're never doing that again. That 59 was fifty nine records in twelve months. Yes. I see the one who bore all my shame. Got it! 
so more than a record a week, basically. Correct. So you basically put a record out every like five days with and everything being done from but art I think to actual producer core to artists, mixing. Managed. Yeah, yeah, but I think probably core artists though was probably like thirty-eight different to forty something artists like we put out a lot of comps like i think we put out like a movie soundtrack and i don't remember all of it but there was a lot of different things we would do we put out these compilations called x on bc which was kind of a compilation that had like christian radio rock songs like reliant k and switchfoot was on that so we put those out but those still take a lot of work right you got to go get contracts from all the other labels and you know but we also we also had almost thirty people working for us. So well, even thirty and, there. Well, is but tough. E, but EMI though was doing all the back end. So you could argue mm -hmm. if we were independent, it would have been more like forty employees, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, on every one of those fifty nine records, there was recordings, mixing, contracts for those things, setups, photo, shoot. photo shoots, marketing meetings, babysitting the artists, maintaining the contracts, doing the administration, the bookkeep. All the things have to happen for mm -hmm. each one of those releases. A, a release of a record is like a business in itself. It has its own whole life. And there's 59 of those projects just in the one year alone. Yeah. So that's that's an amazing amount of stuff. Is it fair to say that you couldn't have done that without EMI? Well, I think I could have actually done it, now that I know what I know now, I definitely could have done it without EMI easily, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but that being said, at the time where I was mentally, I wanted to just be creative and not worry about lawyers and accounting and health insurance, right? I just wanted to do what Brandon does best. So mm -hmm. that allowed me to just not even think about it. But that sounds like the optimum situation, though. It was It was a really great situation. Like, you couldn't have done it as well? I think I could do it as well now. Now, I would but just at hire the all the right people, and I would hire a manager to manage them, and I would know what I'm doing. You didn't know but what you were doing not at as the much peak as I of do tooth now. and nail. I've been doing this for 27 <laughs> years. No, I know more now than I did then. I also mm -hmm. don't want to work 90 hours. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to work 13, 14 hours a day anymore. So uh, what, I just refuse. I mean, who who would? It's just insanity. You know, like. So what was your life during that time? So were you working less? Um, like, you, well, how many had, hours were you working? Just had our first baby as well, so that was crazy. Yeah, I would just work all day long. I wouldn't go to the gym. I wouldn't go on vacation. You know, you just wake up super early, like help with the baby. You just go straight to work. Come home at six or seven or eight. Do it again, over and over and over and over and over and over and over. God, that's depressing because that's the phase of my life I just entered, Brandon. <laughs> I mean, I love doing Tooth and Nail now because, like, I delegate most of the stuff to my team. I work, but um, I I let go. Like, I let if they make an error in my mind, I don't say anything unless it's huge, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, well, if I were to work more, then maybe that error wouldn't happen. But I don't want to work as much. I still work. I mean, compared to like maybe some other people, I probably work a lot still, but. In my mind, I don't work like I used to work. So 2007, let's just think about that year. I don't have anything in mind on it, but that's right in this at this time that I'm interested in. What Describe your life at 2007. You, you were working a ton, but starting to work less and delegate more and let EMI handle stuff. What was your work day to day? Yeah, we do overall marketing meetings. I oversaw the entire company, so I was managing and um, all the A&R department and making sure and overseeing all the marketing and improving all the budgets and doing all of it, you know, and I was still making some of the records too. Um, those slowly and surely over time, I stopped making the records. So I, even when back then, make records, I, well, what do you I was mean back then I was still hiring the producer, finding an engineer, um, negotiating with the owner of a studio down in LA, for example, or Nashville. Um, I built two of my own studios. So I had a studio on Capitol Hill and then I had a studio in Nashville. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of different things that we were doing, a lot of moving parts. And I, I had to approve all the big stuff. And I also had to go meet with EMI once a week. And so originally there was a studio in the basement of the Magnolia office. Yep. There. That's the first yeah. one you built. And then you built the compound in Capitol Hill, yep. that studio. Yeah, with a cool, like, condo above it and everything mm -hmm. else. And I got that condo was, yeah, that was all probably in what, like, 01 is when all that started. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was about 07 when I started working at the compound with Sprinkle. It was about that time. Yeah. That's about where we are. So it had been around for a while. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then you had a studio with JR in Nashville. Yep. That was the mixing studio. Yep. So would you do stuff like listen to the band's demos, listen to their stuff, think about it, we think about the entire, right producer? We would do a staff meeting, or most of the staff, and we would listen to records. And then we everybody would bring a record that they liked, including people like you could be in accounting. And if you really liked a man that you thought you found, you could play for everybody, mm -hmm. which was kind of cool. I mean, usually we didn't sign those artists, but 
you could have done that. And then there were some pretty sweet bands that came through, and a couple, lots of them we passed on, and we ended up being pretty big, you know? Mm-hmm. Was that during I mean, that that's t- how we signed Emory, right? John Dunn worked in the mail order room. I mean, Adam McKinnon found me without you at Cornerstone, and he basically just worked in the mail room. I mean, I still think he runs the mail room for Barsook right now, right? <laughs> but he found me without you, and we all listened to it, and he went to their show. So, like, that was always kind of in Tooth and Nail's DNA, is that if you work at Tooth and Nail, you know, we want you to be a music person, and we want you out, like, putting your ear to the street and, like, looking for bands. Like, it doesn't matter if you are not an A&R guy. Right. Or a woman. And so you had everything pretty dialed, and it was working really well. Was that time fun and satisfying to you, 2007 or so? How did how were you feeling personally about where everything was? Um, yeah, I think that 04 through 07 was the most was one of the three most satisfying times in in Tooth and Nail history. Um, Why? Well, because we were, we had kind of broken to the mainstream where we had bands on Warp Tour and um, our bands were respected and they were playing everywhere. It almost made Cornerstone seem like you didn't need it anymore, right? And we're not the only ones that had something to do with it, but we had something that did that. We were part of that kind of, and that was kind of the goal in a lot of ways with Tooth and Nail. Not the only goal, but to end Cornerstone. No, <laughs> just kidding. I love Cornerstone. In some ways, I wouldn't have even done Tooth and Nail if it wasn't for Cornerstone. Mm-hmm. They kind of opened my eyes to like this whole other world. No, and it wasn't the goal at all. But the goal was, hey, let's, you know, not that every artist I've ever signed into the Nail is Christian, but the ones that are Christian, it's like just because they have a Christian message or lyrics, like why can't they just be accepted everywhere, right? And um, and have music that's just as good. And that, that happened. That did happen. So. So that's why it was so satisfying. It's 2004 to 2007. Well, it's also satisfying to sell millions of records. It's like, hey, we found this artist. No one's ever heard of them, and now they've sold 100,000 CDs, and they can go play a show, and, like, 500 kids will come. Or, I mean, that's cool. Like, it's fun. Like, it's a lot more fun than selling insurance or something, in my mind. Like, it's like, wow, we are actually making a difference. We're helping artists um, get their music out there, right? And if that's the goal of the label is help artists, find artists, connect artists with fans who want the artist, well, you can't argue with 59 releases selling. I mean, how many records has Tooth & Nail sold? Do you have a working number for that in total? Um, well, now it's gotten weird because of streaming, mm-hmm. but um, the last time I talked to Jim about it, maybe three or four years ago, it was like 26 to 27 million CDs. Whoa. And vinyl and cassettes. Cassettes are the, you know, beginning Tens part. of millions of records, though, and by any... And it, but there's many tens of millions of records that you have sold and streamed and everything. Right. And what's weird, too, is that, you know, you have Jeremy Camp in there and maybe like Cutlass and Thousand Foot Crutch and Emery and May and Norma Jean and Amberlynn. And, you know, you'd think those would make up the bulk, but there's still millions of like small bands that sell 10,000. Like there's just a <laughs> mm-hmm. and they all add up. Right. It all adds up. What happened next? What happened next? Well, we just kept chugging along, and I think what what really happened next was the music industry shifted to digital downloads from CDs. And what helped us from 01 to 07 probably is that digital music became piratable, and that actually helped us. Um, I remember EMI Music, who bought half the company in 01, they said, hey, you can't give away, you know, they didn't even want us to stream music on YouTube which was new, right? They, and they didn't want us to give away music or anything like that, but we would. We would just defy them, and like we would just take a single and go put it out online, download this, you know, like or pretend like it leaked, even though we were the ones leaking it. And then when we did that, that allowed people to hear the music like the new radio, but they'd still want the CD because that was still the medium to get. I mean, CDs in some ways, I mean, CDs still sound better right now, you know? Like, so there was a strategic advantage for an album to leak. For a smaller label like us that couldn't get on the radio, right, or could get blacklisted from radio or it cost too much for us to get on there. It's like, well, let's just go give away this song. And, you know, you don't have to go on some BitTorrent site to get it and maybe get a virus or whatever. It's like kind of ordained by the label, you know, hey, check it out. And then all of a sudden you download 300,000 of those. And if, like, even... 
one percent of those mm. people went out and bought a CD. That's three thousand CDs. So there was already through this whole time there was the existence of BitTorrent and Napster. We were beyond that. Those things, of course, those so things that all always started existed. like in two thousand and oh one, ninety nine, what two thousand ish, ninety nine. Yeah. So there was the idea that there was downloadable, streamable, shareable, stealable. That was all there, and it was seen early on as bad or negative or what if this leaks or what happens. But at but some we point, we defied that was, EMI and said, "Hey, you're never going to beat this. Like, why don't you?" lower the price of CDs, and then make the music more accessible, and boom. And that helped us big. And we also signed the right bands at the right time. It all worked out. So, And, um, you know, as well as I think Tooth & Nail has done, we also signed the right groups, right? I mean, Under Oath sold more CDs than other groups, right? Because they had the perfect blend of Aaron singing from the drums, and they kind of almost made their own genre of music in a weird way. Like, they were the one of the first to do that. And so, you know, obviously we can't take all the credit, Tooth and Al can't take all the credit for that. If we had Under Oath sell, you know, two albums, sold a million, and Pep Squad sold 8,000, obviously, they're both on the same label. So we all obviously spent like over a million dollars marketing Under Oath, though, because once we realized they could be big, we kept putting fuel to the fire, right? But, mm -hmm. but even so, we would have been fine to weather that. But the problem was for us is that EMI music basically they had gotten used to our, they're making their bonuses off of like our business. In 05, you know, when they signed, when they bought, purchased Tooth & Nail in 01, I was 3% of their revenue. Not EMI North America, just EMI Nashville, right? Mm -hmm. And then in 05, we were 38 to 40% of their revenue that year. Good God. But we only had 20, you know, five employees and they had 200. Wait a minute. So the EMI that is just the division that you're working with, you, you brought on at 3%. And then they're doing major label, super expensive stuff, and they've had this powerhouse come in that's doing the stuff that's dialed from the way right. you had so been involved. So for a while, I was the golden child, right? I would speak at conferences like at EMI in <laughs> Ireland, at the Four Seasons Hotel in England, you know, and, and poster boy, kind of, yeah. yeah. And you know, and then the guys that did the deal with me, they were the poster guys because they got this guy, punk, you know, punk rock label, and it totally blew up, and they looked like geniuses, right? Um, and really all they did was do my accounting. That's, <laughs> That's why you look back on it now is that they were doing your accounting. Well, and taking I mean, they half gave the me money. structure. They gave me human resources. Capital. Right? They helped me find people. Yeah. But I mean, they never, uh, May went to a major label. Um, the almost was the only example of where they helped me, where they actually signed the almost to capital, but they kept, I was still involved. It was like a partnership, right? May mm -hmm. just went to capital. They just took them and gave me some money. Um, you know, Squad 5 also went to Capital, and they just, get, you know, wrote me a little. Actually, they might have been out of their contract. They might have just taken them from me. I don't remember. But, like, so, but my idea when I had sold to EMI was that they were going to partner with me, and, like, every year we were going to break a group. And uh, So you're saying EMI, in a way, helped you with a band like Under Oath, but not in really any direct way that would have mattered. Well, they helped me by getting an in-cap at Best Buy. Uh-huh. Right? And it, but that still costs $50,000 to get an in-cap <laughs> at Best Buy, but... You know, there's there might have been a chance they wouldn't have, you know. But then I hired Derek Timbush from EMI, and he went and did way more than they ever did, right? Because mm -hmm. he just worked for me, and he had already knew what to do, right? So, I, I mean, the whole thing's just like a perfect storm. Um, but, you know, they did write me a check in 01, and then that made me sleep better at night, right? And then I also didn't have to worry as much about getting audited or, like, legal. Mm -hmm. If a band was complaining, right, they would hear from EMI's lawyer and say, well, what's the problem? It's like, well, nothing really. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, they were this bigger entity that could help me, but they didn't really do what I was hoping for. So the, there's the factor of the music industry declining itself, you're facing, but beating. There's also the financial collapse of the, the whole financial system and everybody. Right, so so I, really quick, when it started declining in 2000 to 2008, we definitely, we grew... Like a thousand percent, we grew ten times bigger. Partly because I believe the tech we hit all we signed all the right bands at all the right time, but we also used the technology in our favor to promote our bands for free because mm -hmm. we already had great like different channels and you know we were the very first label, second label to ever have a MySpace page, right? We were one of the very first what to labels to have a website. I know that sounds crazy, but like we had a website, like there was other bigger labels than us now that you have a website in 1994, mm -hmm. you know? So we used the technology to get bigger. But then 
once downloading hit full force, it really hurt us. And at the, around that same time, EMI started getting on my back. Mm -hmm. That all being said, what really changed in the music industry from my perspective is that digital downloading became the standard and CDs became substandard. And then people started buying either singles or just stealing music. Okay. So you all of a sudden now you're buying a song for $1.29 or 99 cents and you're not buying the CDs or you're just stealing the music, right? And before when we give away free songs, people still wanted the CD, but as kids got older, they started learning that, hey, I just listen to music on my phone. Right, and when the iPod became a phone, the iPhone, and all, and then everybody else followed suit, that even got crazier, right? Because you're always gonna have a phone on you, and you might not carry an iPod on you all the time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so, that stung. It was a spiral effect of the change in the music industry and then my relationship with EMI and their expectations on me that kind of caused us to not do as well. Um, but we still had some, a lot of successes, you know, but we did hit kind of a rock bottom point. You identified two factors there. One, the streaming, the change of technology. The music business fundamentally had an issue. It had a fundamental issue, and my partners were not willing to see the broader picture of like what we offered and what we did. They all they looked at because they were their business was going from huge numbers down 60, 70 percent. But that, That's but why that was that was happening across the music yeah, industry. Yeah, every music label got so if a different executive had handled it in a different way, you know, we might have probably done better. I think because we would have not been so. Um, depressed or if you will mm -hmm. or you know i mean you, it's hard to downsize a company that puts out 20 or 30 records a year and take them from like 22 to like eight right or whatever so it was just um so i've got three major factors though one is the technology changing around music and the industry music industry what a lot of people say collapsed around that time from around 08 to oh the the height of the music industry was 1999 mm -hmm. 1998 you can go google any chart on that but it is now coming back. It bottomed out in, I don't know, 14 or 15 maybe, 13, 14, that 15. That was the low of the low, but it started, the collapse kicked off at about oh. Well, the collapse so. really kicked off in 2000. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you look at it that way. But 2000 was one of the greatest years, but the, the graph was going down, mm -hmm. right, all the way. And, um, but, I mean, if I had never sold to EMI and I had my whole catalog like Victory did, they just recently sold, we would have never had to lay off probably anybody, mm -hmm. you know, I mean... We would have just not had as many sales, but we would have still had some revenues, you know, and so. But the music business was in decline as we head through this time, but you are outperforming the declining industry with a rising thing. So that ramps up some pressure. But also in 2008, everybody in the country lost a bunch of money and was scared. And, there was Correct. A there was, and that was independent of what but was going our, on in music. But, but our on top decline of was bigger than I think even... So look, if you go from 3% of somebody's business to 40, and then you, they drop 50% and so do I, they have the 200 employees. I only have 20, right? So like, they're still, they're still the problem in my mind more than I am. I'm like, well, I can't get too much smaller. I mean, <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? But mm -hmm. it didn't matter. They were just irrational. And all they care about really is their business. Which would be fine if I wasn't a part owner. Like, if I just was their employee, I would just say, yeah, fire me, I guess. I'm sorry. Downloading got invented. But they couldn't really fire me either, right? So it just became this very, very horrible, stressful situation. So the, there's the factor of the music industry declining itself, you're facing, but beating. There's also the financial collapse of the, the whole financial system and everybody. So I, Oh, yeah, then there's the whole, oh, that's the last thing, right? There was an actual real, not a music crisis, but, but the the worst recession since uh, 1929, right? Th that's independent of the music industry collapsing, but it happened to stack up. Right. Yikes. If you're, yeah. like, from my point of view, and I remember all the artists at the time, we're out there touring, we're crushing it, we had a great 05, we had a great 06, you know, we have a great 07, and then all of a sudden you see this and all the news reports are like, 
spending going down. Nobody buying this, nobody buying this. So is that going to affect us? And then so did it? Like when you were going tour, we kids not come. Yeah, yeah. Because well, okay, but see, the, I'm going to tell you a whole another factor here. I want to introduce a whole another factor, but it's a very perfect storm of stuff if you think about it. So yes, people give their kids less money to go out and spend to stay out of their hair for the evening. Right? There's less of that going around in general. So ticket sales and and everything goes down. Right. So, because like, it's no, like, no doubt hey, about it. like, you know, college kids that have no money maybe don't want to spend the money to come to see an Emory show. And the high school kids that would come, their parents may or may not let them go, mm-hmm. pick, give them the money, right? Right. So, the, they don't this, have a job, that's the time when we and many other people sold the least tickets we've ever sold is during that phase of time. That was the hardest time. And it ended most bands, like a bunch of bands that play music like we play, they ended. Not on accident, but because they got squeezed out during that time. Like we were able to figure out ways to survive, it. and then now it's way easier. But yeah. that, during that time, it was it was hard, and that's the way cycles go. So the last factor that I want to throw into the mix that also stacks up here is, well, we kind of are at the end of a run of a, a genre shift. So we shifted a genre from 99 into 2003 with Tooth & Nail, and then now something is different. It's not as clear as pop punk to you know, screamo or anything, or it's not that simple either, but people's tastes go in cycles. So the things that seemed cool in 2003 about trying to be heavier, more aggressive, or a new type of breakdown or mixing this elements together, they've become copied and stale to some degree. And then some people are just moving on from the the scene itself was such a peak that, you know, things have started to change there as far as people's musical taste also. Well, you know, so... In the 90s, rock, it was, like, not cool. Like, you know, you went from the 80s where it was, like, hair bands and, like, Bon Jovi and, you know. And then Nirvana comes out and Kurt Cobain kind of changes music and everything. All of a sudden, we're back to being, like, kind of, like, mm-hmm. serious and cool lyrics and, like, deeper thinkers and, like, it's, like, F the man or whatever, right? And then all of a sudden, around 98, 99, sync gets big, right? The You know, all of a sudden, the boy bands are back because there had been, like six or seven years where there was like no boy bands that i mean there might have been like menudo in mexico or spice girls in england but like overall there was like the new kids on the block was done mm-hmm. and then there was like eight years in there where there was much less but then in sync and these bands start coming back again then i remember rock kind of went out of favor for about five six years and then rock came back with a, a vengeance and that was perfect for to the nail right it, it flew came back to us and we never stopped right and then that crushed all the way up until Till this whole pinch here. Right. So, I mean, you could call it, for me, you could call it the quadruple whammy. Yeah. A real recession, digital downloading gets huge, and people that can't afford music are my consumers. EMI grinds me, and like, and then rock goes out of favor, like, all yeah. at the same time. Well, it's you, just part like of the, the rock going thing. out of favor, or the, what was kind of going on there, too, which is another thing I think should be highlighted to your credit and Tooth & Nail's credit, is... The model, the, by the time EMI came sniffing, they were ahead of the, of the game because they saw the potential in money, maybe even more than you did, to be honest. They saw what the potential was there, so they came sniffing because they're smart. They know how to analyze data. And they know what they're doing. Yeah. They, they knew what they thought they might have in you, and it turns out they did. But could you put your finger on the shift from punk to pop punk to what, what were you looking for? What was going on? You've got, I mean, the Joan Zetta and Classic Crime are, are about that time. How did you see those two bands? Well, we lost a bunch of money on both those groups. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, tell me about that then. Was that yeah? Um, was was that a result of EMI or a bad signing or why? I mean, Classic Crime's a huge group. When Zeta fell apart, how did you lose money on those? Well, with Classic Crime, you know they had a, a pretty aggressive manager, and I think we just gave them probably too much money. But they're a great group, um, and Joan Zeta. I really, really enjoyed them, and we just I, we spent a lot of money on both those. So part of it's just how much money we spent marketing and everything else. So. Those were two groups that I remember both when they signed. It was like this might be huge. the timing of the market 
Rock falling out of favor, then EMI getting all crazy. But we still, we, by the way, both those groups had legitimate shots. We spent a lot of money on both those groups. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would argue maybe for being new artists, the most of any new artists. Like, and that's when you knew that, hey, maybe like something's wrong. Like, is it because of downloading? Are we not as hot as the label? Phenomenal anymore? bands with a ton of money put behind them, and you're expecting them to do something like yeah, go I mean, gold or break, that, be the you know, new break. Cla Classic Crime and Jones Zetter are competitive with Emory and Amberlynn, and you know, but never really popped the way we had hoped. So, I mean, that's the music biz. It's like things change. You don't know. Like nobody's a complete guru and knows every little whim and every little thing you can do. What was wild about that from our view was we when we signed, and this is part of why things get stacked up and get weird, is when we signed, I mean, we got a few thousand dollars, almost enough to buy a van. Almost. Not quite. Not Are I you? mean, not even. Are you gonna, like, I'm not going to say the numbers. Right <laughs> no, I'm not going to say the numbers. I'm going to say this makes hey, a I lot of sense. Hey, I you guys a lot of money to... Uh, we'll talk about that, too. We have before already. Yeah, but, but that's what's so funny about this thing. Is once you get this voracious thing, it starts getting moving like that. It's Everybody wants more, bigger, more, bigger. So when bands like us would sign, we'd have maybe get enough money for a van, and then we wound up selling a right. ton. Right, in 01, we were like 3% of EMI... EMI Nationals Biz, we signed you and a bunch of other groups, and yeah, we didn't have a ton of money to work with or whatever. Then by 07 and 08, we had these huge budgets, and we were taking shots at trying to find the next big grant group, right? So we would spend more money, you know? But those groups also never would recoup if they only sold 30, I know, but that's what I'm saying. The, the formula got screwed up. That was screwed up because then we're sitting here, and there's these new bands that we're taking on tour, and, and they tell us know, about their... I like, Classic Crime got to go record on the beach somewhere right? yeah. on the East Coast. It's like, I'm sure, I mean, you know, or whatever. Like, I mean, there's... The bands wanted to do all that stuff, no, too. No, I know, but I'm saying, so then we're on tour, and these bands come out, and they tell us about their deals, and I'm like, what? How? I can't, but, and now that, you know, that the whole thing there gets crazy, and so you can tell that it's like, oh, if we put the money behind this, it's going to really pay off, but that's not, wasn't the formula of how you succeeded in the first place as, as much, so it's no, easier totally. for that to get out of whack. Or, also, you know. though, you get the band, yeah, but also when you guys would resign or artists resign, I have to give them way more money, I know, too. but part of it is because we're hearing what these I mean, bands you know are getting, and then we want a million dollars, you know? I mean, you know what you chasing? Know? <laughs> safety for versus or like you know or how much i bought the first under oath record from chad johnson it's just like pennies compared to like what we had to spend on define the great line so it's, imagine being a band and by the way is define the great line better than chasing safety i don't think so but it costs like bazillion times more yeah but think about this for a second you're oh. a band who is selling a thousand tickets on a major headliner tour and you get a baby band that comes out to open for you who almost nobody knows who they are and you know what you're worth and then you hear how much money they got what do you think, you know, then what do you think you just, what do I think I, I mean, that's a mistake too, though. I'm saying it's my mistake. It really burnt our band badly getting into that mindset. But when I, that's part of but how When your it deal's felt. done, you could always negotiate what you I want. I know, but why did I think, I, I mean, I would have never thought that I should be getting this, these types of, of this money. But when you hear a smaller band getting more than you and you go, oh, well, then I mean, that we'll is, wait till I get my turn to go negotiate. Well, yeah, and then that's, that's like a sickness. NFL or something. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, but yeah. it's also seven years later, right? Yeah. Seven or eight years later. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I'm yeah. saying when it's time for us to renegotiate, now I'm thinking, totally. oh, well, if they got this and we sell you. these many tickets and they sell those many tickets, oh, then I can't blame watch you. For my, wait for my paycheck. And that's, and that's a sickness. That's a, one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made is getting into that mindset. Yeah. I've got the solution. You can feed me to something that is leaving this. That being said, I'm still the golden child, but in 08 and 09, our sales dropped by like 70 or 60%. And guess what? So did theirs. But mine even dropped a little bit more because I had younger music, which is going to get pirated more. So here I am, you know, when I was 3% of their business, then I go up to almost 40. Now wow. all of a sudden I'm down to like 20. Well, the expectation now is 30 to 40. And I'm like, well, and then I would be in these meetings and I would go, but I only have 20 employees and you guys have 150 to 200 employees. Like, if I'm truly 40% of your business, why don't you let me have 60 people work for me? I mean, right? And it's like, well, we're not going to do that. So, so, so all of a sudden I had this pressure again. From so, overperforming. Correct. So I had the pressure in 99, 2001 because 
I was struggling financially and also just the pressure of having all these employees and, you know, and, and dealing with lawyers and accountants and taxes. And I got my mind off the ball, right? I was more stressed and I wasn't being branded and creative branded. Well, then in 09 and 010, I wasn't creative branded anymore either because now I'm kind of effed because they're like, this is crazy. One year we made a huge chunk of money, but it wasn't the number they had told us we had to make. They would set our budget for us. Even though we're 50-50 partners, right? It's like, huh? So they set our budget for us, and I don't make As if number. your goal wouldn't have been, since that's half yours, to make as much as you could reasonably. <laughs> as right. if that wouldn't your it's goal. It's like, how about this? We have 5% of the employees, so why don't we do 5% of your revenue, and anything after that's a bonus? Yeah, we're bonus no. at 6%, right? No, it's right. like, no, we're going to push you to do better. It's like, I don't need to be pushed, man. I work freaking that's why 14 you, that's hours That's why a you day. found me in the first place. Yeah, yeah that's why you found me. Right. And by the way, you never used to do this until 07 or 08. In fact, you just, when they first signed me and um, bought half the company, they said, we're just going to leave you alone and let you do your thing. And then they were rewarded handsomely for that to the mm -hmm. tune of over and over and over again. But then, now they're grinding me. And mm -hmm. I even had conversations like, my bonus depends on what you're going to do and all this stuff. And what? by the way, they had a different CEO every year and a half. And they had new rules every year and a half. They would do all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, they had this thing called cash conservation. So their stock price before they were publicly traded in London, England, and before they got bought out by this guy, Guy Hands, who's this billionaire that lived off an island so he didn't have to pay taxes in England or whatever. Um, before that happened, they would do a thing called cash conservation where they didn't want to spend any money for three or four months so they could show on their books that Ugh. they had a bunch of money, right? So here I am working with guys that have made my t-shirts for a decade guys that make my, you know, posters, whatever, CD manufacturers, you know, people, we had paid everybody on time our whole life. When we were independent, when we were at the EMI, all of a sudden we're not paying people for like half a year. I mean, people that we you have had, agreements we, to we pay. Personally, our company had money, but because this huge corporate entity that's, you know, and I'm like, well, do I have to have these rules apply to me? And they'd use like one sentence in our contract. It's like that, you know, they would use it says, yes, it says right here that you have to do what we do. And mm -hmm. it's like one little sentence in like 90 pages, you know. And um, so a couple of times I actually paid for things myself and then I would have EMI pay me back. And I actually did that a lot. Well, that but was I mean, a but hard that, but time. That, but how are you supposed to grow as a business during 09 and 010 and 011 when even though you're making money, you still can't pay people money you owe? Not because you don't have the money, but because your parent company, they don't they don't want their stock price to Because they're stockholders. I mean, that's that's the thing that's, that's sick saying. about yeah, capitalism in the deepest way is that it, it start you know, that it's just... That's goofy. And again, if they owned 100% in Tooth and Nail and they had bought me out and I was signed a five-year contract to be their employee, then I would be able to say, yeah, I guess we don't have money because we don't have money, right? But since my our checking account was separate from theirs, we did have money. So I'm like, you know, this is not going well for me, right? And I started to just get bitter and also stressed. And then I started signing a few artists. I don't want to say name names, but a few artists that maybe I just wasn't super stoked on or believe in. And by the way, I have why a did you do it? To try to get a hit for EMI. Okay, so so they can get off so my. So you mean you would sign a band, and we won't name names, but you would sign a band that you thought would sell that you maybe didn't actually like so much. Is that what you mean? Correct. Okay. But I mean, there there are obviously so tooth and nail. I've always signed bands that I enjoy and I like, but I also have allowed other art other employees to sign an artist that they love that they're passionate about that I might think is okay. So there's a little of that. But, I mean, we had we actually signed a couple artists where nobody in the entire staff liked it, but was like, this is what could be big right now, and we need to do this. And that is not the tooth and nail way, right? Right. And, and by the way, I have a very eclectic, crazy taste in music. I've had Danielson Family, Havilene Rail Co., Frodis. I've had Jeremy Camp, Cutlass, you know, more mainstream kind of groups. But I liked all those groups. Mm -hmm. I like hip-hop. I like everything, but I still want to like it. You know, so. But in this particular no, set of pressure, no, I just started pressures. getting my eye off the ball because I started like feeling the pressure. And by the way, it's just so weird too because it's like we had been so successful. It's like why am I feeling this pressure? Like this isn't my vibe. This isn't how we work, right? And I'm all down to like have a, a year where we don't make almost any money, and the next year we will again or whatever. Like, but and so that year we made tons of money, and they made us lay off three people because they had to lay off twenty people. Because the music industry started shrinking. So here I am laying off guys that are my friends. And by the way, you know, who all know how successful way, you are. Right. They're all yeah. these corporate offices, you know, and they're like, do it. 
and meanwhile, we're out in Seattle, and these are all our friends. We go out for drinks all the time and have, you know. And then, and then around that time, too, they said I couldn't have my annual Christmas party that I'd had for 20 years in a row or whatever. So I had to fund it myself. So I was like, that's fine. I mean, instead of the company The company funding, can't even pay for the company Christmas party this even year. Even though, by oh. the way, we're not losing money. We're making a ton of money. And but outperforming everybody else. Well, I was, but then I wasn't outperforming anymore for me for mm -hmm. the standard they had That's set. That's right. As but, the music industry, but I even was, said, "Well, why don't we go back to 01 when you first invested in the company and just hold me to that standard?" Right? There's this new standard, but I, I go, "I'm still an owner in the company." Right? Like I go, "Look, if I was a soldier and you bought me out completely and I didn't own any of the company, and I you said make this goal and you didn't, then you could fire me, but they couldn't really fire me either, right? So they I'm just stuck in misery. They won't buy me out." Um, and by the way, I also didn't really want them to buy me out because I didn't want my artist and tooth, and tooth and Nails brand to go there, you know. So it just became really convoluted and then we kind of we definitely started kind of taking a spiral down. When you would sign a band that you hoped would sell a lot, but you didn't have your heart in as much. Did that work? Um, well, I can think of three times. Three times. Two did not work. I think one would have worked, but then the artist didn't want to do what we wanted them to do, and then it did not work. If they would have done what we said, it still may not have worked. Who knows, right? I mean, I also told Norma Jean to keep their name ludicrous and the still and the sound like corn, and because uh, <laughs> that's what they were when I signed them. Um, and obviously, that I was a moron. So it's like, I mean, you know, I don't know everything for sure, but at the same time, if I'm the one investing the money, or EMI and I together, you know, it's both of our companies. So um, the question yeah. I have there but is, I think it was more just kind of annoying, right? Because it's like. You're working with this artist. You're not really that into it. You're only doing it to try to make some guy get his bonus, even though you've already made him all this money. And then meanwhile, you're afraid you're going to, if you don't do it, you're going to have to lay off more of your friends. Even though if you own the company on your own, you would never lay off anybody. You're making, I mean, do we were making so much money compared to like what we are now today or what we were all through the 90s, right? So to me, it was like, I didn't lay off anyone in the 90s and we made almost no money. So why in the world would I lay off my guys now when we're making tons of money? Because it's not enough money, right? right. It's like crazy. Mm -hmm. And that's the corporate mentality. And when you hear that about major labels, it's just all true. Like, they are bottom line because they're publicly traded corporation, right? Yeah. And, I mean, you can't necessarily blame them. The, the guy they, that they I never, You never thought they came to it with anything other. I mean, well, it's they, but, but they But they started off leaving me alone, and I thought that was our arrangement, and it worked great. But then I did too good. I did too well, and then all of a sudden, if you become this huge part of someone's business, then if you don't deliver, you're in trouble. Except that I still own part of the company, so I felt like I should not have to be part of that. Like, I'm like, well, we're a partnership. I mean, I, your bottom line is different than my bottom line. I mean, I still own, you know, part of this company. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. It was very, but but I don't know if that would have ever happen. I mean, Tooth & Nail probably would not have stayed as hot because, you know, you've seen it. Certain labels go up and down in their hotness, right? Victory was the hottest label for a while. Rise was, you know, we were for a while. I mean, you know, there's some labels like Epitaph that say strong consistently or whatever. But, like, you know, even so, Epitaph probably had their exact moment, and everybody does. So I think that if, like, digital downloads didn't happen and CDs had stayed, we would have probably stayed more consistent. But that being said, we got crushed, and I think anybody that had had bands that were high school and college bands are not going to do as well as somebody who's doing like you know 40 something rock or whatever mm -hmm. like a new aerosmith cd comes out and it's still at walmart and still sells to people that are like 40 50 right but then once downloading hit full force it really hurt us and at the, around that same time you might started getting on my back and then i started getting colder in my nr and like we all started trying to we were in a defensive position with our parent company mm -hmm. right so and they were in a defensive position relative to the whole economy of course you know right so they're looking out for them and they control our money, right? If they want to, they can just say, oh, we have a I mean, shareholders here are right, facing yeah. some terrible shit. But even shit. though I'm an owner, I, I can't, they could just cut off my money, right? They could say, I mean, I could sue them, and then hypothetically I'd win. Two years later, everyone's, you know, I mean, they're the boss, right? Like, even though we're, we're partners, and even though on the contract it says we're partners, they are a major label, billion-dollar company that controls the money now, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, they are my boss. Like, whether it said it in the contract or not, we're supposed to be partner, you know. No. So that's what we were facing. So that leads to the artist being very frustrated. I can speak to that because there was times when we would 
you know, in 04, before we had made any money, if we said, our van's broken, we need some, can you advance us some tourist like right? Yeah, you just, okay, we'll give you eight grand and you can pay it back <laughs> later, it's fine, and the money'd be there. Tour support. I mean, this is side of the road kind of stuff. And that yeah. was whatever, and that was fine. And then later it became very important things that when we have a demand and power and need and you owe us money and the A&R Takes guy months and months yeah. and the A&R guy says oh EMI has us on a cash freeze it's not my fault but you will not get this check for 6 months because we're not spending any money for 6 months and i say but you but you well, you you owe i mean this is brutal yeah. And, and that's that's so i mean you can imagine and i am somebody who again really had never had a ball i mean i worked at nordstrom selling ladies shoes and spaghetti factory <laughs> <laughs> and then you know right out of college i worked for frontline records and i interned at virgin but by the time i was 22 i started tooth and nail so i had never really had a boss and even though these guys were in nashville tennessee and new york and la they let me do whatever i want all the way up till 08 right so even then i even though i had a boss i mean we spent so much money on Under Oath, they started calling me saying, we're nervous what you're doing. You're, you're doing these end caps at Best Buy, and but they still let me do it, and it all worked out. Then all of a sudden, they stopped letting me do what I did, even though that's what got us to where we were, right? Didn't matter, because they had these corporate, like, oh, this is what Blue Note Records is doing, and this is what, you know, Virgin's doing and Capital's doing, and if the Andy Warhols can't get their tour support, either can your groups. So that's like, I go, but you guys are the ones losing millions, we're still not losing millions. We're making money, maybe not huge money, but why can't we just run autonomously from everyone else? Because you're destroying us. You're just destroying us. And then, then it just spirals from there. Then I begin to get bitter and not like them and hate them. I mean, I'm not going to use the word hate, but very disgruntled because all of a sudden guys like you are mad at us and we yeah. have nothing to do with it. Like, we can't do it. Like, even though what's even makes it worse is that I know that we, if we were independent, we could do it. So it was just the worst. Like, I almost don't even know why I'm doing this podcast. I'm just getting no. Yes, it's thinking good. About it. It's like, good. It's it's. I, I really appreciate you saying it. Do you feel that you got some bad personal reputation based on stuff that wasn't in your control? Sure, absolutely. In 08 and 09, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then in the early 90s, we had low point contracts or whatever because we were just getting started. And the guy that showed me how to do it, that's what his were. So. Mm -hmm. We had horrible distribution fees. <laughs> how did that begin to affect you personally? Did that feel? How did? It, I mean, your quality of life goes down through that yeah. time, and it was just a miserable time, yeah. Because you're just stuck here, and I'm very loyal to my staff, and you're like worried about them, and like how much, you know, are they going to make me lay off people, and you know. And you did lay off people. Yeah, we did. We laid Tell off me about that. Would you ask them to come in your office and explain it and say, "Am I?" Yeah. So, like, this? I mean, I remember I I fired. Um, I want to say fired, I laid off. Mm -hmm. Firing is when you fire somebody for cause, right? I right. laid them off because they EMI eliminated their positions. So the first time they ever did is they eliminated sales guys because you didn't need to, you know, go to stores anymore, and which makes sense. But we were still doing a ton of physical business. So we were like, well, hey, maybe that's down the road, but we like to keep our sales guys at least another two or three years. And they're like, no, no, we'll do it for you. EMI will do it. Of course, then our sales went down huge because Derek Timbush and Kevin Shepard were amazing sales guys. And all they did was sell our products. Uh, Derek Timbush just single-handedly, I mean, made massive changes in, in for Tooth and Nail. Like, right. It, and he had worked at EMI, and then he came here. <laughs> and then they told me I had to lay him off because they would rather, all they do is look at a spreadsheet. And they're like, well, instead of having 30 salespeople, we'll have eight. And they'll call all the big stores, right? It's like, yeah, but they're going to be pitching the new Dandy Warhols album. And they're going to be pitching, like, Everclear's Greatest Hits album. And they're going to be pitching Huey Lewis and the News' Greatest Hits album. And all those zany, crazy hits albums you guys are doing right now. And the Trikem, you know, make ends meet. The Pink Floyd, you know, whatever. And so I go, they're not going to be pitching the new Emory record as much. And they're like, sorry. You, and then you have to let them know that, you know, so then I call up Derek. Hey, man, thanks for everything you've done for us, kicking ass, taking names. And But EMI is making, I mean, I definitely was not, I said EMI is making me let mm -hmm. you go. I mean, there's no way I'm going to say I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it was brutal. I mean, Derek is one of those guys who is just so amazing that you know, I mean, he was is is such a fan of the bands that he yeah, he still goes to shows he all the time. He goes yeah. to shows all the but time. A guy now. like Derek, you know, we could have tried to make a new role for him too. But so I don't know. I mean, I don't want it to be this huge negative thing, but it just is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was supposed to say it. It was a rough time, you know, like 08 and 09 were a rough, rough 
I was very depressed. It was just very not a good time. The, what's the tone of the staff? Are they starting to feel it? Are they worried? Do they ask you like what what's going on? Are they stressed or did they you know how did the, what was the tone and feeling of the staff going through through there? Well, I mean, I think they could feed off me. But I mean, it's very frustrating working for a company when like you know people are calling you saying, "Hey, how come you haven't paid for this?" You know, like just something as simple as like you know you would do things called end caps, right, at these stores. So you would put up like posters, right? So the company we'd buy all the posters from for years and years and years. Like we stopped paying them for about half a year. <laughs> I mean, the good news is that everybody always did get paid at some point. But it'd be silly, right? It'd be like, okay, our our stock price. The news came out, so now you guys can pay all these invoices. So for days, because they can show Q3 profits. Right, right, yeah. Stock, so right. for day, and by the way, again, tooth and nail is like what one quarter. Of, we were thirty or forty percent in Nashville, but in the worldwide EMI, EMI Australia, EMI India, EMI England, EMI Norway, EMI Germany, EMI Virgin Capital, we're like point oh one, you know, yeah. less than a percent, right? So, like, why they made us do all this stuff, I do to this day do not understand. Because it only hurt, made us not do it well as well, right? Mm -hmm. So then we pay off all these invoices, and it'd be like churning out checks, right? It's like, okay, we got like nine hundred invoices to pay. Mm. Like the checks had always been waiting, and you just hit the button, and then they all go out. <laughs> and then everything's good for a while until they, they want to do it again, it again right? Yeah, they freeze yeah. it again, and like, and we would even start. This was kind of crazy, but we started trying to work the system, right? So we would actually have people that we worked with say, hey, why don't you bill us for extra stuff now, like ahead of time, mm. and we'll try to shove those mm -hmm. through. But then EMI started figuring out we were doing that too. Yikes. <laughs> so that's the <laughs> total like, why do the posters cost three times as much, you know? Because then we would have them redo the invoice later and say, oh, we already paid these too. And, you know. So t just tell me about more about the, the effects or morale of the staff or your relationship with them. How does that go then? Say that can't be Well, ideal. I mean, I'm just not as joyful as I used to be, right? I'm well, a little bit more Well, if you're sad, in the staff and depressed. you know the people are getting laid off and you're in the next desk over, what, what must you think? Just like what you, you would do at any other company, except that instead of working at Microsoft or something, it's like the boss is right there and you can just come ask me. So, of course, they did. They <laughs> I mean, come in and like, say, you know, are you going to lay me off? Am yeah, I safe? Like, well, what's it look like? Should I be looking for other jobs? And I'd say, well, I would love to have you here. You know, I had people say, if you were me, would you look elsewhere? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to make me do because like six months from now, there could be a new guy. And that new guy could say, we are going to do this new thing and we're not going to lay anybody off or whatever. So, so at least I'm going to get my resume together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and by the way, what a weird way to do business, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, wondering if like you're going to lose your employees at any moment, you know, they're wondering if I'm going to let them go. And I don't know because it's like, well, if it's up to me, you're not, I'm not going to let you go. And, you know, yeah, so, just... I mean, it was just a tough time. It was rough. So that really affected, if it wasn't for EMI, I felt like, I think we would have weathered that storm much, much, much better. It would have, of course, hurt, but it would not have been what it was. I mean, at some point we stopped signing new bands for a while. Like, we just were just like, what are we doing That here? was a decision. Well, I mean, you're still looking, but it's like, am I going to sign this band? And when their van breaks down, like, EMI is not going to let me give them money and I'll have to personally give it to them. And like, maybe EMI will pay me back half a year later. And how do you run a business like that? It's like, are you my partner or are you not? At what point did you know that something's got to change or we're in trouble? Is there, can you think of a moment or a time where you're like, oh, okay. 2011, I knew what to do, but I just couldn't do it with EMI as my partner anymore. I felt like I over-delivered to them for years and years and years and killed myself, basically, like, to make them happy. And then at that, you know, it's like, it's. I mean, they even wrote me an email. It's, what have you done for us lately? And I'm like, all right, let's. so let's try to part ways. The lessons here are very important, in my opinion, because... Well, they demonstrate how you can get into these situations because when I'm hearing it, what I <laughs> I hear it as in a there's a way to look at this narrative as the but it's not a conspiracy or anything crazy. It's just corporate interest and shareholders coming in and finding something of great value and maximizing is, yeah. it. And it starts to feel like the mob, the way you're saying it. We're going to help you. We're going to protect you. We're going to be all these things. And then you're in their pocket at some point, and now so, you, you know, don't have control. Some of these labels that have sell, sold, they just sell the whole label. And, like, to me, in a lot of ways, that's cleaner, right? Because I just never will have a boss. I would never, ever have a boss like that again. No way. Never, ever. I just will not do it. Like, I will not have a partner 
that's a major label that has stockholders or shareholders, you know. And you can see that pattern in other parts of life, correct? Yeah. Like that's a pa- like that's this is a moral lesson. Yeah. This is kind of what I mean, this look, podcast if I found is about. Another like-minded person that said, "Hey, I want to buy half a tooth and nail, and I own this record label. Let's join forces, and it's just you and me, and there's two people." Sure, I might look at that. Even though I'm not, I never want to sell tooth and nail ever again. But my whole point is, is that the amount of CEOs that were at EMI while I was there. And the amount of people running Capital and Virgin, and there's 73 other labels there. The, the amount of turnover and ownership was crazy. I think four owners and like 14 CEOs, and each one had their own, like maybe not 14, like nine or 10, but they all had their own vision for what they thought EMI should be. And they are corporate. So they're like, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And then it would be like affect everybody, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, yeah, it was just brutal. I mean, it would have been a lot easier to say, hey, we can't give you fix your van because we truly have no money. Right. Which is what we were instructed to say, except that we did have money, mm-hmm. but they didn't want their stock price to plummet in London, England, in a country I don't even live in, right? <laughs> was there a time when you say, okay, we're going to have to do something different? Like, what was the, when did you know, and what did I could not get out of the vortex from 08 to 012 to do something different because EMI would never let me do anything different. Mm-hmm. So the answer is no, not really. I had all kinds of ideas, but I couldn't do it. So I was just, it was, uh, I was at a point where I was just, very discouraged, right? But I mean, what we tried to do different was just sign bands we thought could be huge, and that actually was not a good idea. What I really wanted to do different was go back to doing To the Nail the way I wanted, right? You know, like super indie, super cool, signing bands that we just love, creating a persona, you know? I mean, if you sign a band like Frodus, even if they don't get huge, other bands may want to be part of something that Frodus is on, right? Or. Mm-hmm or Me Without You, or something like that. Of course, Me Without You actually went on and sold lots of records. But if they didn't, either way, you know, sometimes having cool bands on your label that maybe aren't huge but are, like, artistically significant and stuff is a good idea. But not in EMI's eyes, right? It was like, we just won sales. So at this point, you're looking for daylight or an out, or did you get, I mean, you got your rock bottom there, you were... So at that point, we um, I was really trying to figure out, you know, with with EMI, like what I could do to part ways, and uh, like you know, my contract came to an end, and then we had to try to figure out how to part ways. So there was an expiration date on the contract where there was, but there was all kinds of like language in there. It got confusing, and so, so there's a pop potential now of daylight, and you know things got to change. We've hit rock bottom, and there's a there's an imminent negotiation coming up. Yeah. And what year, when was that? Pe- so in 2011, my deal was ending, and I, uh, we had to try to figure out what we could do to part ways. Um, around that time, though, Universal was sniffing around at possibly buying EMI and somebody else. So there was always a reason. EMI always kind of gave me a reason to stick around, like the new partner might be really mm-hmm. make you guys a priority and blah, 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 blah. And, you know. But it was clear that to split would be painful no matter what. Yeah. The path forward was going to be painful regardless. It was going to be painful. <laughs> Especially for me. All right. Well, it sounds like there's a bumpy road ahead. So next time we're going to talk to Derek Tenbush, who's originally an EMI employee who came to work directly for Tooth and Nail and somebody that I think has quite the useful vantage point to help us understand just what it means to have the industry that you love collapse right out from under you. All right, hit the credits. My name is Sean Summers from Somerville, South Carolina. I'm a labeled member. My favorite three Tooth and Nail catalog songs are Finn by Amber Lynn, BC by Plank Eye, and Free Fall by Stage Saker. I contribute a few bucks to this podcast because I just am fascinated with Tooth and Nail, and the bonus hours of bonus tape are totally worth it. Um, Matt Carter is our host. Editing and story by Matt Carter. Production management, sound design, and additional mixing and editing by Reza Hansen. Our executive producer is Brandon Evil. Special thanks to Adam Scatula, Jim Worthen, Tyson Paletti, Marshall Fermat, and Tooth and Nail Records. This podcast is made possible by Jesse Bates Soul, uh, creativecoaching.com, and the rest of the members of the label community on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a title sponsor for your band, brand, or nonprofit, find us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash label. Oh,